This is episode number 53 of the Individual One podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the bi-weekly program which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective because, unfortunately, no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. And unlike the corporate media, we here at the Individual One Podcast have most definitely not been compromised or co-opted. Welcome to the program. Please remember to subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. Follow us on Twitter at Individual One Pod. That's Individual, the number one pod. Lots to get to, as is always the case in this bizarre era of Donald Trump. A couple of housekeeping things. In episode number uh, 52, I mentioned that I was scheduled to meet with uh, GOP contender for the presidential nomination, Joe Walsh, while he was here in Los Angeles to do an appearance on Bill Maher's HBO show. That actually did happen. We had uh, breakfast, uh, Joe Walsh, uh, Lucy Caldwell, his uh, campaign manager, and myself. We had uh, breakfast uh, for about an hour and a half. It was uh, very productive, very interesting. I shared some ideas and suggestions with them, which they seemed to like quite a bit. Whether or not uh, anything can actually be done on that front is complicated and unknown at this point, but we're uh, still in communication about that, and I do wish Joe the best. I think that they are up against an enormous, overwhelming challenge, and that challenge has gotten more difficult in just the last few days. There was a a story that appears to be legitimate, as bizarre as it is, that uh, the GOP, the Republican Party, has now effectively and officially become a wholly owned subsidiary of the Donald Trump organization. Correct. And this is no longer an exaggeration. This is for real, because the Republican Party is planning on canceling primaries and caucuses in at least four states, including South Carolina, which is an important one, Nevada, which has been an important one in the past, Kansas and Arizona, which are significant states. And if those four do do it, my guess is you're going to have more do it because the only reason why they're doing it is to kiss the ring of the king. Correct. I mean, that's what they're doing. They, They are afraid to hold a primary because they don't want to provide even the opportunity for the king to be embarrassed. And this really is all of this. So much of what has happened this week in the last couple of weeks is about... Donald Trump being the emperor with no clothes. Correct. And no one wants to tell him that he has no clothes or that uh, without his clothes, uh, he looks really horrible and has a very tiny weenie. No one wants to do that. And they don't even want the opportunity for someone to maybe tell him that. And a primary or a caucus is that chance to do that. They're not going to let it happen, even though he's going to win even though, barring some sort of cataclysmic, unforeseen, black swan event of epic proportions, he's going to be the nominee, this has now become uh, kind of like a, a, a rite of passage now. This is like a sign, a, a symbol of your loyalty. Are you loyal enough to the king that you're willing to even cancel your primary? Really, folks? Come on. You cannot be serious! But that's where we are now. 
That's where we are. To, in order to prove your loyalty to the king, the emperor with no clothes, you must cancel your primary. Not because Trump might lose, but because we want no opportunity for there to be any dissension whatsoever. We don't even want other people who are maybe Trump skeptical in our state to even hear that a few thousand or maybe tens of thousands of their fellow Republicans voted for somebody else like a Joe Walsh for president of the United States when we have an incumbent running for re-election. The whole thing is it's just flat out ridiculous. It's, it's embarrassing. It's absurd. It's dangerous. And everyone has condemned this uh, with any rationality. Uh, if Vladimir Putin did this, uh, Americans and conservative Americans would be condemning this. Correct. I mean, Mark Levin would be mocking this. Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity. This is like Saddam Hussein. You know, we, we either rig the election or we're just going to cancel the election if we can't totally rig it. And, of course, this the, the ultimate hypocrisy here is this is coming from supporters of Donald Trump, a guy who spent all of 2016 claiming that the system was rigged against him. Correct. Right? The whole Remember that? The primaries are rigged and the general election is rigged because you can't comprehend the concept that he might lose, so it must be rigged. Well, now here we have his sycophants actually rigging the process for real. Correct. And no one will care. There'll be no repercussions for this. This is all about a cult. This is what a cult does for their leaders. And it has not stopped another candidate from getting into the GOP race, if there's even going to be one. Mark Sanford announced today that he, as the former governor of South Carolina, former congressman, that he is also going to be running against Donald Trump. So technically now, although it's a little ambiguous to me whether William Weld, former governor of Massachusetts, belongs in this category, but we have three people. Joe Walsh, who's been on this show and I'm a friend of his, and as I mentioned, had breakfast with him and his, his campaign manager a couple of days ago. Mark Sanford and William Weld are all now, in some way, shape, or form, running for this Republican nomination, even though there doesn't appear to be an actual nominating process. Because we can't have that. Because we must prove our loyalty to the king, even though he's an emperor with no clothes. Now, the Sanford decision is a surprise to me. I think it's a little bit of a surprise to Joe Walsh as well. There had been efforts over the last couple of months when Sanford had talked about doing this to get Sanford to not do this, to try to clear the field for just one person. These were people who were supportive of Joe Walsh's candidacy. And there are some positives to Sanford getting in because I think it creates a narrative that there's more of a movement that this isn't just one guy doing this for potentially publicity. This is three people who are doing this for various reasons, who are very different kinds of candidates. It's kind of almost like, uh, you know, um, the the three bears. Or, you know, remember or the uh, the porridge. One is a too cold, one's too hot, one's just right. I forget which fairy tale I'm talking about. But the, the reality is there's there's all sorts of different flavors now and, and different uh, temperatures. Little Red Riding Hood, I guess, is what I'm talking about. Uh, uh, different temperatures here of anti-Trump candidates. And, and kind of like uh, you got Joe Walsh, the fighter. 
You got William Weld, the thinker, and you got Mark Sanford, the feeler. The fighter, the thinker, the feeler. <laughs> and, uh, and so it's taken away the, the one uh, option of, well, look, I don't like Trump, but I don't like Joe Walsh, or I don't like Mark Sanford, or I don't like William Weld. I mean, come on, you got to like one of those guys because <laughs> they, they pretty much run the gamut. They, they fill the full spectrum of possible anti-Trump candidates. So it's kind of taken away an excuse for someone who is anti-Trump to actually voice that they are anti-Trump by voting against him in a primary. That part is good. The negative part, and I've told Joe Walsh this, he and I texted about it today, and he disagrees with me, uh, but uh, I think this is bad for any one particular candidate. I don't think this is good for Joe Walsh's candidacy. It's good for the general movement against Trump, but not for the individual candidates. I think it's going to uh, take away some of his media coverage. I think it uh, muddies the water. I think it's going to make fundraising more difficult because now there's more options. I mean, because now people who are willing to spend money, and there are not that many of them, who are willing to spend money against Donald Trump in a Republican primary have another option. They don't just have the Joe Walsh option. Now they're going to have the Mark Sanford option, and apparently they'll have the William Weld option. And it's my opinion that that's the way the media is going to deal with this now. Because now... There's for sure at least two and possibly three with William Weld. The media is going to, I think, and Trump may even help foster this perception because he'll think it's good for him to, you know, have the, the, the three, you know, three guys who are, are not really capable of taking him on. He doesn't want a one-on-one battle. So he kind of likes this, you know, the, the, the three munchkins going after him. Uh, and I think the media is going to probably use that in their narrative. I think they are going to portray this as well. We've got three contenders now. And for individually, I think that makes it more difficult for any of the one to break out and be successful against Trump for reasons I've already stated, including fundraising, media coverage. And, you know, if, if you're ever going to pull this miracle off, you got to get Trump one-on-one. you got to get him to debate. you got to get poll numbers that show you're really competitive. And when you've got three people fighting for a small piece of the pie, that becomes even more difficult than it already was. So I'm not particularly thrilled, at least from my friend Joe's perspective, that Mark Sanford got in, although I can see that it could help the greater, larger cause of showing that there is an element of the Republican Party that is not part of the cult, that is not kissing the ring of the emperor with no clothes. I don't know how large that is. It's not a majority. That's for damn sure. So I do see the positives. From Joe's perspective, and I see this, and this is not me ripping on Joe. This is human natural behavior because I've seen it in real life all the time. I, you know, Joe and I, when we discussed whether or not he was going to run, one of the things we said was, well, you got to clear the field. you got to make sure Sanford doesn't get in and Weld never really makes a legitimate run and that you're the only guy, that you're the one-on-one candidate versus Donald Trump. And he agreed with me. And apparently people also around Joe Walsh agreed with me. And now once it's happened, the feeling is, oh, it's no big deal. It doesn't hurt at all. Well, hold on a second. That's not the way it works. And let me give you a strange John Ziegler-type analogy. Uh, it's kind of like 
if you're discussing with uh, your wife or a family member where you're going to go on vacation and when you're going to go on vacation. And, you know, this happens a lot to me because my wife loves taking vacations. And, uh, and your wife says, hey, can we go such and such a place at this particular time? And let's say there's a conflict, a potential calendar conflict at that time. And I say, yeah, that's a good idea, except we can't do it unless we are able to get rid of this conflict. And the wife says, yeah, 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 you're totally right. Yeah, we, you're right. You're right. If, if we can't get rid of that conflict, we'll do it some other time or we won't do it at all. And then it turns out you can't get rid of the conflict. But in the ensuing time period, the wife has become invested in the vacation. So now all of a sudden, the con- not getting rid of the conflict isn't a deal breaker anymore. You see where I'm going with this? Well, it's similar. Before Joe Walsh decided to run, having Mark Sanford run was a deal breaker. Well, now that he's announced and he's invested and he's doing it, it's no longer a deal breaker. It's no longer even a big deal. I, I have philosophical problems with that. That, to me, is an indication. And this is not, again, criticizing Joe Walsh. This is the way human beings work. Once you psychologically become invested in something, you start discarding negative information, and that's uh, potentially dangerous. So that's the Mark Sanford move today, which he announced, ironically enough, on Fox News Channel. There's another uh, element to this. This issue of the GOP and the Republican Party becoming a wholly owned subsidiary of the Trump organization. Trump's campaign manager, who is frankly nutty and scary to me, uh, was speaking, I think it was at the California Republican Party convention. Now, we don't talk about scary. (laughs) You want to talk about scary. Having lived in uh, California now for 15 years, having spoken at a Republican, I think I spoke at at uh, at a session at the uh, Republican convention in California many, many years ago, having been a Republican delegate to the national convention back in 2008, I know these people, and I know post-Trump, where the Republican Party has been completely wiped out at every level in California, that as bad as it was when I was there, it's got to be a thousand times worse. Well, maybe at least ten times worse. And so he uh, spoke to this group, and he referenced that the Trump family is now a dynasty. The Trump family is now a dynasty. You cannot be serious. That will be ruling for decades to come. For decades to come. And unfortunately, I think he has a point here. Now, I don't know if it's going to transfer to Don Jr. or Ivanka. Uh, It's certainly not going to transfer to Eric because he's an imbecile. Um, but, uh, you know, stranger things have happened. I do think that the bigger point here is that the Republican Party is now a cult. I love the poorly educated. It's all about kissing the ring of the emperor with no clothes. But from a practical standpoint, and there was been some discussion of this week, uh, of this topic this week in, in some conservative periodicals, This idea of what happens once Trump is gone to conservatism and the Republican Party. And I believe a lot of people have been very naive, frankly, colossally naive, when it comes to evaluating the most likely scenarios. Because, well, I think there's a better than 50-50 shot that Trump loses in 2020, 
That in no way, shape, or form means that this thing is over. Correct. In fact, uh, I think that it could just be uh, in the middle still. We still have a lot of this nightmare left to go. It is hard for me to imagine a scenario, even if Trump got crushed, where he is not a completely different shadow president for the next president. That because of his Twitter feed and because of his access to Fox News Channel, he will effectively become the most prominent critic of the current president, which he will obviously have no inhibitions of doing, even though other presidents never would have dreamed of doing it. And he's going to pretend that he's going to do exactly what he's constitutionally capable of doing, which is to run again for president in 2024. And who's going to stop him? Because he'll have the cult still. Not all of it, but most of it. And that cult is large enough and scary enough to scare the living daylights out of any other major Republican candidate. You're going to still have to kiss his ring. You're not going to be able to piss off his cult. And whether he's going to be pretending or what, he is going to be a major force in the conversation about 2024, even if he gets his clock cleaned in 2020. And this is why having the Republican Party be a cult matters. Because these people aren't going to suddenly leave their positions. They're not going to suddenly change their minds about what Trumpism means or whether it's the right thing to pursue. They've all been brainwashed. They're members of a freaking cult. And Trump will take advantage of this. Now, he might only pretend to run for three years, taking up all the oxygen, and then he doesn't do it because he's afraid he might lose. But it won't matter. That's still an enormous impact. And not to mention, at the very, very least, at the very least, everything, major Republican candidates for president or major influencers in Congress, anything they do, that, that will go through the, the Trump Twitter feed. If it, he'll give it either the thumbs up or the thumbs down. Therefore, the cult will perceive it in that way, whatever way Trump wants it to be perceived, and vice versa. They will all have to react to whatever the hell Trump says or tweets because that's the way the media will work. This is going to be a noose hanging around. Or not, not just a noose, although I know noose has got a racial angle to it, so I, won't, I know that's a bad word now. Sorry for the political incorrectness. But it's going to be an anvil hanging around the neck of the Republican Party until he dies. And according to his campaign manager, maybe after he dies. I saw a joke on Twitter. It's not even that much of a joke. Someone on Twitter joked this week that Trump is actually going to schedule his tweets years into the future. So after he's died, his Twitter feed will still be running the Republican Party. You know what? I can, I can see that kind of craziness happening. Correct. Uh, so the idea that somehow we're going to be able to expunge this uh, in 2020 is fanciful. There's almost no way for that to happen. I mean, it would have to be... A, a a defeat of epic, unprecedented proportions. And I don't see that happening, largely because we're so divided, because the Republican Party is so cult-like, because even Joe Biden has such weaknesses as a candidate. I just don't see a 60-40, you know, 48-state wipeout uh, that would maybe, just maybe, knock some sense into Trump's cult. I love the poorly educated. I just don't see it happening. 
And this is why, I've been saying a million times, this is why we will rue the day that Donald Trump was even the Republican presidential nominee and certainly president. Because there's no going back from this. And there's no going back from this largely because of who Donald Trump is. He doesn't care about norms, principles, uh, concepts like right and wrong, the truth. All he cares about is himself, and he's willing to destroy anything. doesn't matter what it is, and he certainly doesn't give a damn about the Republican Party. In fact, there's a scenario where he's happy if the Republican Party gets destroyed because it leaves him even more of a savior in the minds of his cult. That's the upside-down, bizarre world we're living in now. And we saw it so much this week, and I I have to at least mention this Alabama-Dorian controversy, because in one way, this is the dumbest story that has ever gotten major play in the history of the the Trump administration. All right? It is idiotic. It is a non-story. The president... All, they, all he did was, on Twitter, mentioned Alabama as one of the states that was potentially being threatened by the Hurricane Dorian, which thankfully didn't destroy any, I mean, it destroyed some parts of certainly the Bahamas, and there were elements of the United States where they were hit hard, but it was nowhere near what it was feared it was going to be, thankfully. And so all Trump did was tweet out that Alabama was one of those states potentially in the path. And he got criticized for that because that wasn't really a rational interpretation of the weather forecast. Nobody really thought that Alabama was in any grave danger. And when the president says it, right, if the president says that Alabama is in danger of being hit hard by a hurricane, well, Trump's got a lot of fans in Alabama. That's going to impact people's actions in Alabama, right? People are going to evacuate their homes. They're going to, I mean, it's, that, that's going to have an impact. And so there was a rationale for correcting the misinformation. And so there was some correcting of the misinformation. Again, not a big deal, just a damn mistake. Or, you know, if you want to be super charitable to Trump, he's just being overly cautious and talking about things he doesn't really know. I mean, that's the, that's the best interpretation. But again, not a big deal. But Trump has such an insecure ego and uh, so hates criticism that he starts to make a huge deal about this. And he takes literally what is a, a molehill of a story and he makes it into a week-long mountain through a series of utterly bizarre responses that are strange off the charts for anybody, even Donald Trump, but especially a sitting president of the United States. But this went way, 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 way beyond anything that it possibly could have or should have done. And it, it got to the point where this was the biggest story of the week. This is uh, Trump, out of his own ego, taking a, uh, a molehill, turning it into a mountain, to, I, I believe against his own self-interest, all to protect his own ego. And it's gotten now, it, 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 would be, it started trivially, but now it's, it's serious. Now it's an actual legitimate issue because, one, it shows the level to which this administration is willing to lie and kiss the ring of the emperor with no clothes, 
as well as potentially Trump's own unfitness for office and mental instability. Because this kind of culminated when Trump decided to hold a press conference, a press conference in the Oval Office, where he shows maps, maps, allegedly weather maps, of where Dorian was headed. Maps that do not show the path of the hurricane hitting Alabama. Correct. And then the press notices, wait a minute, the cone has a very strange marking at the top of it, which does reach into Alabama. Somebody has taken a Sharpie, a Sharpie, and extended the cone, incredibly and artfully, so that it reaches Alabama. I'm not making this up. It is hard to believe, but it actually happened. You cannot be serious! And it's obvious that it was Trump himself who took a Sharpie, extended the cone, so that his tweet could somehow be vindicated. This is at a press conference in the Oval Office of the White House. It's just flat out ridiculous. And then, when he gets criticism for that, his campaign starts selling Sharpies to take advantage of the controversy because, after all, the president is always right. Despite that the emperor has no clothes, we must kiss his ring. We must do everything we possibly can to make sure he does not feel insecure. We must back him up even when it's a lie, even when it's irrelevant, even when it's counterproductive because it looks like an episode from Veep. I mean, that's what this was. This, the, the Veep show on HBO, which was brilliant, which originally was intended to, mark, to mock uh, Sarah Palin and then ended up uh, in its final seasons mocking Donald Trump. This was an episode of Veep. Only they out-Veeped Veep. I mean, even Veep might have gone, oh, come on, really? The president took a, a Sharpie and, and extended the cone to justify a, a ridiculous tweet about a hurricane hitting Alabama? But that's what happened here. And then we have official government organizations, the NOAA, actually putting out a statement. They're in charge of the weather forecasts for for the federal government. Allegedly vindicating President Trump's tweet about Alabama being in the path of the hurricane. Now, nobody signed this statement, and there are now reports that people at NOAA felt fearful of retribution if they either spoke out against what the president did or did not back up his ridiculous assertions about Alabama. This is all over a weather forecast. Now, if this is happening in full sight and we're seeing it and people are willing to, at least on background or through anonymous sourcing, tell the media about it. What is happening in situations that we don't know about? It has to be beyond scary. It has to be beyond our wildest expectations, our worst fears. And there's reporting that indicates that. There is reporting that people close to Trump believe that he is losing his mind. Business Insider came out with a fairly extensive report. Again, Trump fans won't believe it because it's anonymous sourcing. 
People around Trump are worried about his mental state. They can't even schedule the president because he gets into a temper tantrum like a child. I have a two-year-old and a seven-year-old. You can't even schedule a play date with this president because he's liable to blow up the whole schedule because he gets off on a tangent like the Alabama controversy, all to protect his own ego, all to protect like you know, the Wizard of Oz, protect people from seeing behind the curtain that he's not infallible, that he's not some sort of a god, that he's actually a moron. It's, it's funny. There's a funny element of this, but there's also a very serious aspect to it. And no one seems to be willing to do anything. It all feels like it's spiraling out of control, that this is getting into more and more serious matters, yet no one has the balls to step up. Nobody. Not even James Mattis and John Kelly, two former cabinet officials, military leaders, esteemed men. They've turned into total wussies. Mattis is afraid of speaking out. Kelly has actually said, apparently, that he won't put out a a book as long as Trump doesn't criticize him. Come on, people. You cannot be serious. Really? Are you that much of a wuss, John Kelly? James Mattis, I mean, this goes to my theory about old, successful white men becoming wussies in their old age. And it's happened continually with people close to Trump. And it's why Trump has survived to this point. James Mattis, John Kelly, Rex Tillerson, Matt, uh, Mitt Romney, Lindsey Graham, Robert Mueller... All successful old white males who have turned into total wussies in the face of standing up to Donald Trump. The only successful old white male that didn't do that ever was John McCain. And unfortunately, he died. And this is why Trump is able to survive. This is why the Republican Party has become a cult. This is why we are in such a potentially dangerous situation. This is why we have... Bizarro World episodes, also kind of like an episode of Veep, where the president suddenly tweets last night that a meeting he had planned at Camp David just before 9-11 with the Taliban had been canceled because they had recently killed an American soldier, as if this was the, the first clue we had Uh, that Trump had, that the Taliban were a bunch of bad guys and maybe shouldn't be invited to Camp David just before 9-11. We have members of the cult, Lynn Cheney, daughter of former Vice President uh, Dick Cheney, and Lindsey Graham, former pal of John McCain, two people, you know, (laughs) who in their right minds would never have gone for all this baloney, Cheney and Graham praising Trump for canceling the meeting, saying it would have been inappropriate to meet with the Taliban, especially at Camp David, especially just before 9-11, without ever mentioning that it was Trump's idea to begin with. Correct. This is, this is upside down, Alice in Wonderland, 1984 George Orwell stuff. You can't give Trump credit for canceling a meeting that it was his idea that should never have been done in the first place. I mean, and of course there's a tweet for everything. There's actually a tweet of Donald Trump tweeting in 2012 that President Obama should not be negotiating with the Taliban. And trust me, Obama never thought about having the Taliban to Camp David 
just before the 9-11 anniversary. David Frum, who's been a guest on this show, joked that Camp David was chosen for the potential meeting because the Taliban just couldn't afford to stay at one of the Trump hotels, specifically the one in D.C., which is pretty funny. You know what? It also might be accurate because that's the way this president thinks. Now oh, they can't afford to stay at the Trump Hotel, so I can't make a penny off of them. Let's put them up at Camp David. But we're living in bizarro world, and it's happening now on a daily, if not hourly, basis. Another story similar to this whole issue of Trump grifting off the presidency and becoming the swamp that he claimed he was going to drain. And this story, to me, is amazing and has numerous elements to it. It got reported this week and has been backed up by various other major media outlets that the U.S. military has been using the Glasgow Presswick Airport in Scotland to refuel military aircraft. Now, why is this interesting or important? Well, one, it's highly unusual to use Glasgow Prescott Prescott Airport in Scotland. It's a very small airport, and it's not particularly well located for this purposes. But the U.S. military has been doing apparently a lot of refueling there. Now, this is, to me, obviously significant for the following reasons. The Glasgow Prescott Scotland Airport, tiny, struggling, is right around the corner from Trump's Turnberry Golf Course. Now, the Trump Turnberry Golf Course has been, to me, shrouded in mystery from the moment he bought it back in 2014. And I have always felt that there is way, way more to the Trump Turnberry story than anyone has ever reported in the mainstream news media. Now, Turnberry is a historic golf course. It used to be part of the British Open rotation until Trump bought it, and the RNA has rightfully and smartly taken Turnberry, at least temporarily, out of the British Open rotation because they don't want to deal with Trump. So they're not going to have a British Open at Turnberry, despite its great history, including the duel in the sun between Tom Watson and Jack Nicklaus, one of the great uh, matches in the history of golf, plus uh, Watson almost winning the British Open in 2009 at the age of 59. Uh, That was at Turnberry. Well, they're not going to go back to Turnberry because they don't want to have to deal with Trump. But what's more important than the British Open, and as a golf fan, that's important to me, but what's more important is how and why Trump bought Turnberry at the time. This makes no sense to me. Trump bought Turnberry with way more cash and has put way more cash into Turnberry than any of his other golf projects. Now, why is that important? Well, it makes no sense right off the bat because this is 2014 when this happens. It's not only against his normal M.O., but Trump knows. Trump knows at that point he is probably going to run for president. And when you're going to run a long-shot, independent presidential campaign, the number one thing you need is cash. Trump has always been cash poor. He's nowhere near as rich as he claims to be. I've talked about that numerous times. But even he would acknowledge he ain't big on cash. He does everything on credit, using other people's money, ideally. So all of a sudden, 
while he's thinking about running for president, and I know this firsthand because in 2014 I had a conversation with Donald Trump, which in retrospect was all about his strategy to run for president. And that was in March of 2014. So he already knows he's probably going to run for president. He needs cash. Why is he spending all sorts of cash against his normal M.O. to buy Turnberry? That's weird right off the bat, and the source of that cash has always been a great fascination to me. But when he buys Turnberry in 2014, he puts out a joint press release with, I can't make this up, the the Glasgow Presswick Airport in Scotland. Why? Because the airport is struggling, and obviously Trump Turnberry and the airport have a mutual self-interest. Their self-interest is the airport's got to survive, otherwise Turnberry is toast. Because if you don't have an airport nearby, people can't get to it. And I, I've played a lot of, not a lot of golf, but I played golf in the area. Getting to Turnberry is not easy. Like if you go to St. Andrews or uh, Carnoustie or the other place, it's not right on the way. You so you so Trump desperately needs that airport to survive, and obviously the airport wants to survive. So they see each other as mutually benefiting their self-interest. They put out a press release in 2014. There are British or UK media reports from early 2016 when Trump is just becoming a presidential candidate raising questions and issues about this relationship and the inappropriateness of the relationship between Trump and the airport. And this is before he's even the Republican nominee. So you got Trump buying Turnberry under suspicious circumstances with a ton of cash. You have this relationship between the airport where they're tied at the hip. And now we have this story that finally comes out this week, although there's been inklings of it previously, that the United States military, according to the New York Times today, has spent $17 million refueling military aircrafts at, you guessed it, the Glasgow Prestwick Airport in Scotland, when they had not done so previously. Now, to be 100% fair, there was a contract between the airport and the United States at the very end of the Obama administration, which was renewed during the Trump administration, but there's no evidence that this had ever actually happened until Trump was president. And it's a hell of a coincidence that all of a sudden we're going out of our way to refuel our military aircraft at an airport that is funding, effectively, providing funding for a a small Desperate airport, which Donald Trump is on record saying he is going to do everything he can to try to help sustain the airport. That was in 2014. Well, this was one of those very few promises that Donald Trump has kept. And he kept it. Why? Because it's in his direct self-interest. Because if that airport goes down, Trump Turnberry goes down. And Trump Turnberry is the crown jewel of Donald Trump's golf properties. Now, this is not a difficult scandal to understand. I mean, and, and apparently the House Oversight Committee has been investigating this for months, which is really interesting because who chairs the House Oversight Committee? We're better than that. That's right. Elijah Cummings. He's the guy who 
makes that statement we use constantly on the on the individual one podcast. Well, what happened with Trump and Elijah Cummings? All of a sudden, a few months ago, out of the blue, Donald Trump starts attacking Elijah Cummings on Twitter. Correct. This was that whole Baltimore is a shithole uh, controversy. Remember that? And how somehow Elijah Cummings is responsible for the the crime rate in parts of Baltimore because that is portion that is a portion of his congressional district even though that's not the way Congress works. The president has far more theoretical control over what happens in Baltimore than the congressman from Baltimore does. But it doesn't matter because facts don't matter because after all, Trump's supporters... I love the poorly educated. So now all of this fits. All of this, the pieces of this puzzle have come together. It is, it is very obvious. It is very obvious that Trump is using the U.S. military to help prop up an airport that he needs for his golf course. By the way, I love this part of the story. Apparently, U.S. military are getting discounts to stay at Trump Turnberry and to play golf there. <laughs> not free, not free, but they're getting discounts. Isn't that nice? Uh, <laughs> my guess is, by the way, in the way Trump's mind works, this is a way of keeping the people involved in the operation quiet. He's like, this is a mob operation. So if they're benefiting from the stopovers at uh, Presswick Airport and they're able to stay at Trump Turnberry, are they going to blab to anyone about this? No. Why would you do that? You're benefiting from it. So that, that's my theory on what's really going on here. But the reason, you know, if you put all these pieces together, it's obvious Trump got his hand caught in the cookie jar, because this got found out, Elijah Cummings started to investigate it, and so Trump decides to attack Elijah Cummings on something totally different, knowing that eventually this is going to come out, and that at least within the cult, Elijah Cummings will be discredited. And therefore, this will not have the impact that it should, because this should have an impact even within the cult, because it, it is as corrupt, it is as selfish, it is as swampy as it gets, and it's even potentially dangerous. Because what happens if uh, you have a military accident or uh, by going out of their way uh, to get to Prescott Airport, uh, some other operation gets influenced? There's all sorts of things that can go wrong here. But it's the principle that ought to matter here, not that principles matter a damn anymore in the Trump administration. But this story is is mind-blowing, and I think it's dangerous. I think it's dangerous. I think Trump knows it's dangerous because it's one that you can understand. And it goes at the heart of what a fraud Donald Trump really is. Now, there's another story that's also mind-blowing that I don't know if it's real or not. It's so unbelievable that it might actually not be believable. It feels a little bit like the Lawrence O'Donnell, you know, Trump's loans from Deutsche Bank were co-signed by Russian oligarchs close to Vladimir Putin, which I told you was not credible. And it turns out it was not credible, at least as far as we currently know. But this is a Washington Post report that Trump is blackmailing the Ukraine in various ways in order to get them to provide his campaign with dirt on Joe Biden. Well, oh, God. Now, come on. Really? Really? Even I have trouble believing that. And the sourcing on this story wasn't great, but it's the Washington Post. It's hard for me to believe that they would go on on such a limb if they didn't firmly believe in this. But 
and it certainly is consistent with other things we've seen in the past, but really, I'm not willing to believe this story yet. I need, I need something more. To believe that Trump is that brazen and that dumb to be blackmailing a foreign country, the Ukraine, into providing dirt on Joe Biden. Wow. I mean, we're, we're through the looking, looking glass here, people. I mean, you don't even know what to believe and what not to believe because virtually anything is believable. And this goes to something I've been talking about for the last several weeks, this issue of market manipulation. You know, if Trump is willing to do this with our military to, to prop up a, a Scottish airport for his golf course and theoretically to blackmail a foreign country into providing dirt on his potential 2020 presidential opponent, then why is market manipulation, which would be much easier and with more plausible deniability, why is this so difficult for people to wrap their brains around? Why is the news media not asking any questions about this? Interestingly, just today, J.P. Morgan, it was learned, has created an index which measures Trump's tweets and their impact on bond volatility. So some people are starting to, to look at this a little bit more carefully. We've, you know, we've, we've got Bloomberg documenting Trump's tweets on the economy and its impact on the stock market. Now J.P. Morgan is doing something very similar on the, the bond volatility, and their argument is that he has done things that have clearly and dramatically impacted the bond market in a way, and this is my interpretation, in a way that easily could be manipulated if you had a little knowledge of where he was going to go with what he does in his tweets, which would be incredibly easy information for him to share without it being technically illegal or at least difficult to prove that it was illegal. So everything we know about Donald Trump is consistent with this being something he would want to do and something that would be easy to do. It's just all so, it's, it's so mind-blowing. All of this is just so damn mind-blowing. I mean, the idea that somehow uh, a meeting with the Taliban at Camp David just before 9-11 is probably going to be forgotten about within the next couple of days just shows you just how unbelievably desensitized we are. Unless, of course, the Taliban decides to compliment him, they send him a nice letter or, or they create a good uh, web video that goes viral saying how great uh, Trump is, he'll, he'll probably change his mind. He'll probably totally change his mind on the Taliban. You know what? They're misunderstood. They're good people. We, and, and if I'm going to get a good, good enough uh, media coverage for it, maybe we should try to do this Camp David thing. You can see that happening because we have the Kim Jong-un precedent, the Vladimir Putin precedent. And, you know, where this all ends at this point, I don't know, but it's not going to be good. It's gonna, it, it is going to fall apart. It's going to fall apart for Republicans, conservatives, and, and unfortunately maybe even for the country as a whole because we've still got over a year at least left of this. Um, I do want to at least uh, provide an update from episode number 52. I mentioned that uh, Leif Olson had been uh, fired from the Labor Department as a lawyer because of a hit job on him by Bloomberg Law over a sarcastic and obviously sarcastic Facebook post, well, that has now been at least partially corrected. Uh, Olson was restored to his Labor Department job uh, after some negative reaction on both the left and the right, although I don't know that uh, Trump actually weighed in on this. 
Uh, obviously, it must have been the power of this podcast. That must have been the only rational explanation for, for why uh, Olsen got his job back, I kid. Uh, but the outrageous behavior by Bloomberg has not been corrected. In fact, they not only didn't apologize, they tried to cover up the whole thing, and they told their staff in an email, in an email, Bloomberg Law told their staff not to comment or tweet about the whole fiasco once Olsen was restated, reinstated into his job. So Bloomberg Law completely irresponsibly, flat out lies about what Olson posted on Facebook. It was obviously a joke. It was obviously sarcastic. It was the opposite of how they portrayed it. He gets fired. He gets his job restored when it gets exposed what a fraud Bloomberg Law had done. And Bloomberg Law and the reporter on it, no apparent repercussions, no real accountability, and they just, you know, Pretend it never happened because they know in a day or two, by Monday morning, it's old news and we can all just move on. And, you know, this is all uh, their role in, in trying to take out, uh, you know, alleged conservatives and Trump supporters because the ends justify the means. That's the way they look at it. So, you know, Trump benefits from the fact that his critics are uh, almost as unscrupulous as he is. And this is a good example of that. As is always the case, we end the Individual One podcast with an update on the percentages for whether or not Trump will finish his first term in office and whether or not he'll be reelected. I don't know why I'm I'm suddenly feeling a twinge of optimism. Maybe just because things are so nuts, so crazy that, and there's so much time left in this term. Oh, well over a year. I, I just got to believe that there's at least a chance, underline a small chance, something dramatic is finally going to happen. So I'm going to raise the chances of Donald Trump not finishing his first term in office all the way up to 10%. That's almost as high as it has ever been in the history of the podcast. That's still a very, 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 very low number. But it is. I can at least see a theoretical path where the chaos just becomes too much and it's no longer sustainable. Again, 90% chance that doesn't happen, but I can at least see a theoretical path where it does. I'm going to keep his chances of being reelected at 40%, uh, largely because we have two great unknowns. Is Elizabeth Warren really going to be the Democratic presidential nominee? And is the economy going to turn into something close to a recession? Uh, if both of those uh, things or, or well, look, I mean, there's all sorts of different combinations. But if, you know, if the economy goes in the tank and Biden is the nominee, even with all the many problems that Joe Biden has, Trump has basically a 5% chance at re-election. But if the economy stays strong and Elizabeth Warren is the nominee, and we'll know a lot more this week because we've got uh, the debate, the Democratic debate uh, coming up, uh, which we will cover on the podcast. Uh, if that happens, if there's a strong economy still and Elizabeth Warren is the Democratic nominee, then that percentage is much, much higher, probably in the 55 to 60 percent, maybe even 70 percentile, that Trump will, in fact, be reelected. So those, those are the reasons for why the number is static, even though there's a lot going on behind the scenes. That'll do it for this edition of the Individual One Podcast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. Follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Individual, the number one pod. That's Individual, number one pod. Until our next episode, scheduled for Wednesday, uh, mid-afternoon, Los Angeles, California time. My name is John Ziegler. You're listening to the Global Story Network.